Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. Episode 234, recorded for the week of November 1st, 2023. I'm not a good cloud, and I'm not a bad cloud either. Good evening, Ryan. How's it going? Pretty well, pretty well. How are you? Uh, you know, it's uh, nearing the end of the week, and uh, I'm ready for the weekend. Mm-hmm. So, super excited about that. But, uh, you know, we, uh, we unfortunately, uh, Matt had to go to a wedding, and uh, Jonathan had something come up, so he was in the drawing. So, it's just the two of us, which is always mm-hmm. a fun episode. Yeah. Although, we have a very small amount of show titles this, or show topics this week, so it will be very quick. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> how these will work out. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we can uh, jump into some good news this week. First up, uh, we've talked about DHX in the past year, I believe, on the podcast, and uh, how he's the prime example of big cloud repatriation. Uh, although he did point out to Twitter this week as well, I saw that you know, they moved a bunch of stuff on prem as well. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if he's the biggest uh, return to on prem world, but uh, he's definitely the most vocal. Uh, and so, Forrest Brazil, who's been a friend of the show, has been on our TCP talk show. Uh, you know, in his most recent newsletter, um, had a little bit of a talk uh, and take on some of the back and forth about these cloud repatriation people and those who support DH moving back to AWS, back to DC, and vice versa. And uh, honestly, I thought his rebuttal was the best one I've seen out there. <laughs> and so, you know, he basically, you know, he didn't get into like a lot of the semantics about is he right or is he wrong and and those things, which I think is really where people fail on this because it, it is a matter of your business. It is a matter of a bunch of things. But he really broke it down into a two-by-two uh, two box that I think really summarizes this quite nicely. And he's basically, his argument about Basecamp in particular is that Basecamp is a small company with relatively low growth uh, that has a lot of really highly competent IT people because DHS hires people. There's people who are big fanboys of him, so he attracts people who are kind of worship that culture. Uh, and so he has a really good team of people at his company who can help do this thing. And But he then countered that with growth. and And because... Basecamp has, you know, Jason Freed and DHS in particular have said for a long time that they're not in the business to make huge enterprise billion dollars. They're happy making a product that their customers love, uh, but they're not, they don't have a sales team. They don't really do a lot of things. So they're not a high growth company. And so Forrest's analysis is basically saying there's two sides of the spectrum of this four bucks uh, growth, which is low growth and high growth, or, and then IT competence is the other uh, access, low IT competence or high IT competence. And basically, he summarizes in this that if you're a low-growth company with low IT competency, you should probably go to the cloud, and you should probably get help doing it so you don't screw it up. If you're a high IT competence and low-growth, you should probably go to the data center. Makes sense. It's a predictable cost. You don't have a lot of need for burstability, uh, and that's a big thing. If you're high-growth and low-IT competence, you definitely want to be on the cloud. And if you're high-IT competence and you're high-growth, Hybrid cloud or something. I don't know. You're the smart one, as he says. <laughs> but, you know, I think really that is that's where it makes sense to probably look at something like hybrid or it makes sense to, you know, really think about your workloads and do they make sense in a cloud world or a non-cloud world and take advantage of both, which I think is really the best of all worlds when you can take advantage of both solutions in this. So overall, he goes into a lot more detail about how he sees this and the back and forth and and overall some quotes from other people out there in the market. And Kelsey Hightower uh, you know, pointed out rightfully so that, uh, you know, the 15 years of cloud helped DHS even be able to do this <laughs> because being able to do a cloud exit of this size for the complexity of what he does have, you know, without cloud technologies that enabled some of those things, it would have been difficult for him to do this going back. You know, declarative infrastructure, containerization, all that stuff is a big cloud advances that were brought to the world 
that he's not benefiting in his data center as well. So don't forget about that part of this either. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I agree. This is, this is the best sort of, uh, write out that lays it out end to end, like how to choose where to put your workload. Um, I, I, you know, notable things that's missing are like, you know, the, the stereotypical sort of arguments for cloud or, or data center. And it really isn't an opinion piece on what is right. It's more methodology of how to choose and how to think about it. And, and with, you know, sort of examples and anecdotes about the, the stuff that's out there. Um, the one gripe I will say that I have with this is just if you have a high growth and low IT confidence, I, I also suggest that you seek help. Um, even more so, I would think, to get to the cloud, just because you know there's so many things that you can paint yourself in the corners without really knowing the scaling concerns. You know, thinking about service limits of a you know a single AWS account or or a GCP project, and you know they how to design for that use case is, is super important. And I think that you probably want to get a, uh, a partner or someone who's got a lot of experience to help you out as you start your cloud journey. He, he quotes a uh, sci-fi author, Donald Kingsbury, uh, which is a great quote. Tradition, tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. Throw away the solution and you get the problem back. Sometimes the problem has mutated or disappeared. Often it is still there as strong as it ever was before. <laughs> and I agree with that. <laughs> oh yeah, one hundred percent. And then he had a, he had a great comic in this too because Forrest, one of his things he does is uh, he has these great comics he draws, as well as he's a you know a musician and he's a very multi talented. <laughs> it really fella. is, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he says, yeah, we need who needs the cloud when we get eighty percent server utilization across our data center? Then its server utilization is broken down into things like monitoring agents and management tools and one majestic. Uh, majestically inefficient database, query, <laughs> for example. Uh, so quite, quite clever. Uh, yeah. it, it definitely hit home for this tech geek, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, but this is a, if, you, if you've been hearing people at work talk about uh, repatriation as the solution to all your problems, uh, definitely check out Forrest's article. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll take away some good little tidbits as well. All right, let's go to general news. Uh, four years ago, uh, back in the dog days of 2020, <laughs> Uh, there was a startup founded uh, by Steve Tuck, Jesse Frizzell, and Brian Cantrell. And they basically said they wanted to bring cloud computing to enterprise and data centers and you know, potentially help companies like DHH uh, run their own clouds on-prem. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that, that company is called Oxide Computers, and they've been sort of uh, you know, writing blog posts. They've been on some podcasts, but uh, there has been a lot of going on. Jesse Frizzell even left the organization to go do another startup. And so it's really Steve and Brian Cantrell now. Uh, Brian Cantrell's fam- kind of famous that he uh, was one of the main hardware engineers at Sun uh, Microsystems back in the day, I believe, uh, is the company. And so he's got a lot of uh, pedigree in this particular space. And so over the last four years, they've been developing their answer to the first world commercial cloud computer that you can buy and put in your data center as long as you understand you have to buy it in rack units. <laughs> uh, and that's full racks, 42 of them. <laughs> While major cloud providers have built their own cloud computing services, Oxide is the first company to be selling a commercial version of an out-of-the-box cloud computer for individual companies that deliver the same massive hyperscale benefits, be purpose-built for high-performance computing, networking, and storage, and they're hailing it as the first true rack-scale system with fully unified hardware and software design for on-premise cloud computing. Uh, they already have a, a couple of interesting marquee customers like the U.S. Department of Energy. In addition, they did secure their $44 million uh, round A. And uh, they're bringing their total to $78 million. And a lot of buzz on this one. Uh, lots of cool pictures in the article of the rack itself. And uh, if you're interested in not buying the really expensive 
uh, rack solutions from AWS called Outposts, this might be a great alternative option for you. And uh, I have to say, Steve Tuck and Brian Kentrell are very smart people, and I would have a lot of faith in what they're building. Yeah, I don't have any firsthand experience, but, you know, I do, you know, I definitely come from a data center background back in the day and was building, you know, similar sort of in-house programs to do very much the same type of thing. And, uh, and so like, this is a hard problem. And I, you know, it is interesting to see them taking the task of developing the software and the hardware together, right? Because that's a lot of the, you know, to get a lot of the density and get a lot of the benefits there. It's kind of neat. I do think that it's still a little limiting, you know, would compare to a cloud, like, you know, it's, I think that you don't get your choice of like CPU flavors and versions and things like that. But it's also, you know, it's probably just as limiting as, yeah, say running outposts or, or, um, forget what Azure has one too. And I forget the name of it in your own data center. So I like it. And it's very pretty. Like, I don't know. I, I, this is the nerd in me. The pictures were very sexy. Yes, I love it. All right. Well, uh, it is your favorite time, so plug your ears. Mm, here it comes. <laughs> it's earnings season once again, so uh, you now get to rest your ears for another quarter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this will be fun because you don't care anything about earnings, so I'm going to try to make this entertaining for you. <laughs> best I can. <laughs> Uh, but uh, up first was Microsoft, who had a great quarter with revenue of $56.52 billion versus the Wall Street analyst expectations of $54.50 billion. Uh, this is up from $50.12 billion a year ago with net income of $22.29 billion, which was a 27% increase. And they are expecting a 15% growth for their second quarter coming up. Intelligent Cloud, which includes Azure and all the other things they dumped into this bucket, uh, produced $24.26 billion in revenue, up 19% from the year prior. Azure itself jumps 29% higher than the, which was higher than the 26% expected. Uh, but I will remind you that Microsoft does not point out just Azure revenues. So that is all Office 365 and much stuff. Notably, Microsoft said that Azure OpenAI service now has 18,000 customers up from 11,000 in July. And uh, the three percentage points of Azure growth is tied to AI per the CFO. So that's a pretty big increase in revenue tied by the AI you know, era. And it's just the beginning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, this will be crazy to see how it shakes down. I was surprised by the numbers. I also know that, you know, 18,000 is a whole lot of people like clicking the demo button, you know, kind of deal. But um, yeah, we'll see. I, we know it's going to grow. We know it's going to take over. Just how quickly does it take over? Yeah. Now, when does, when does Skynet happen? You know, it's mm-hmm. all downhill from here. So At this point, if Skynet takes over, I, I would almost welcome it if I don't have to read any more news articles about the, the trivial advancements of AI. Right. Like, mm. I want to know the big advancements of AI. When, yeah. Like, when they develop sentience that decides that humans aren't worth, worth their space. I, I am sort of curious about, you know, like some of the advances that are happening in open, uh, open AI's models, like what happens with their next model. And they're starting to combine a bunch more data points to it. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm sort of intrigued by the model development and what's happening there and the number of objects they're shoving into these models. Mm-hmm. And then I'm super excited for the lawsuits that are all. Oh, in yeah. court right now you know they're not they're not litigating yet but they're they're good they've been filed yeah. <laughs> so we're yeah. keeping an eye on those and the cloud you know the cloud models and how they're developing that to try to you know have some sort of ethical responsibility built in there i think there are definitely cool things going on it's just really hard to sort through all the all the noise to get to the neat stuff well microsoft had a great quarter uh but things over in alphabet land were a little less rosy 
Revenue was $76.69 billion, which you know, is bigger than Microsoft's, <laughs> uh, and beat the consensus estimate. But Google Cloud revenue missed expectations, only earning $8.41 billion versus $8.64 billion, a $20 million miss, which in $76.69 billion seems like a rounding error. <laughs> <laughs> While sure. their unit missed the consensus, it still grew 22% from the year earlier, double the rate of expansion for the company as a whole. Uh, the business has an operating profit of 266 million versus losing 440 million the year prior in the cloud business. And Lee Munson, chief investment officer at Portfolio Wealth Advisors, was not kind. Uh, he said, "If you want this stock to keep going higher, you have got to get the cloud becoming more profitable. It's a third-rate cloud platform. You need to see it make money." Ooh, finding words. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pichai did say in the Q and A that they have been helping customers with their bills, but giving uh, given the macro challenges the customers have faced, meaning they've been giving concessions. Uh, that definitely has not hurt their profitability, but definitely hurts uh, somewhere in their revenue model. Yeah, I mean that's pretty uh, harsh words for for uh, you know a sector of of Google that wasn't making any money up until very recently, right? So it's uh, it's pretty pretty harsh, but it's also you know kind of true. There, I do believe that you know GCP is. A, a third place, but a very far and distant third place to the other two hyperscalers. And that might be colored by my beating my head against my computer all day. But, uh, (laughs) you know, and by that, I mean, it definitely does, but it's, there's just certain things that don't work the way they're documented and where they expect. And, um, and there are things that are just overly complex for figuring out how to do something very trivial that takes a lot of expertise and, um, and it's very difficult to sort of build a business around and do, com- you know, more complex workloads. So, well, you know, with uh, Microsoft on top fire, Alphabet missing expectations, we we're all sort of wondering what Amazon was going to end up on the spectrum. Are they going to have a good quarter? Are they going to have a bad quarter? Uh, and luckily, they came through with a good quarter. Uh, revenue rose thirteen percent to one hundred forty-three point one billion dollars in the third quarter, with the net income tripled to nine point nine billion from two point nine billion the year prior. Andy Jassy has been cost-cutting, of course, due to inflation and rising interest rates, eliminating 27,000 jobs last fall. This has resulted in an operating margin of 7.8%, the highest since it reached 8.2% in Q1 of 2021. Significant increase over the 2% margin they had a year prior. Amazon analysts were positive on Amazon shares, with commending that improvements in margin, AWS acceleration, and long-term AI tailwinds that will impact this model over time. AWS revenue increased 12% to $23.1 billion compared to the same quarter, and income was $7 billion, representing 62% of Amazon's total operating income. <laughs> Overall cloud growth coming in at 27%, so staying relatively flat in the growth chart, which is good. It's not declining as it had been, mm-hmm. uh, or at least it's not declining as quickly. So, uh, yeah, it feels like um, maybe companies are panicking a little less about cloud spend. They're maybe not pulling back as aggressively as we saw in earlier quarters. Um, and you know, I know the Fed just you know held interest rates where they were, and you know maybe maybe we're hitting that soft landing the Fed promised. We'll see. Mm-hmm. No, it'd be nice. <laughs> it'd be nice. Yeah, it's still been really painful. <laughs> sure. <So. has>. <laughs> <laughs> How much is that milk today? Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, overall, uh, you know, Q three uh, calendar Q three was pretty good. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully, we see a strong Q four. For these guys, of course, Amazon will have a good Q4. It's Christmas time, but uh, mm-hmm. you know we'll see how everyone else does and fares through the thing. And then, oh, the other thing about Google's revenue I didn't mention was uh, YouTube uh, advertising seems to be back up, which is a good sign. Uh, oh, yeah, because uh, that was radically down like last quarter. Yeah, 
So uh, that's a uh, that's good. So maybe we're uh, maybe people are a little less a uh, little less scared of spending frivolous money on marketing. I mean, I know my Amazon purchases haven't decreased, even though I keep saying that I should save money and I should rely more on you know local businesses and everything. I I, I actually haven't. <laughs> It turns out. <laughs> but that requires you to put on pants and leave it your does, house. Which yeah. I'm not a fan of. I'm not a yeah. fan. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's definitely a, a high bar for them to, you know, I can wait till tomorrow and it shows up <laughs> on my porch or. It's so easy. It's so easy. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. All right. Well, AWS uh, had a couple of interesting news stories, not major ones, but uh, sort of interesting, like, oh. So first up, multi-VPC ENI attachments, which means you can now attach an ENI in different VPCs to an EC2 instance. With multi-VPC ENI attachment, customers can maintain VPC-level segregation between networks while allowing select workloads like centralized appliances and databases to communicate between them. While allowing select workloads like centralized appliances and databases to communicate uh, in that network. It's a pretty legacy pattern uh, from, I remember doing this back in early 2000s. We had the app zone, the database zone, and we had the app servers with two network cards, one on the app network and one on the DB network. And that was segmentation. (laughs) Yeah. And there was no way to get traffic between them. No way at all. I mean, there was a router and a route table and you definitely (laughs) could do it. You just, you know, if you wanted high performance, you just didn't do that level. (laughs) Yeah. That part. No, I mean, it was, it was sort of tongue in cheek because it's the, the, it's funny because, you know, a lot of the VPC benefit is, is the isolation and the the segregation Mm -hmm. that you get. And so, it is sort of funny to see it sort of get undone a little bit, you know, but it is still, a, you know, an option for customers. They don't have to enable it. So it's, I get it. Um, and there's, you know, there's workloads that I can think of where I might've done this instead of some hokey, you know, thing I did yeah. where I went going out to the internet and coming back in so I could keep, keep things isolated. So like it, I get it. Well, I mean, in the data center, one of the, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why we did it in the data center. One was we have the dumb separation between web and, web and DB zone or web and app DB. Uh, and then you also did it for like iSCSI networks. Like we put our iSCSI network in an isolated network. And that one was because of saturation. But, you know, the, the argument you would make was you didn't want your database traffic coming out one, you know, impacting your web traffic. Um, and so you wanted that segmentation across your network cards. And you get that because, you know, the server had multiple PCI slots and you could get throughput through that. In a cloud server, though, because of the Nitro limitations, you know, adding additional ENIs doesn't actually add additional capacity. You still have a limit tied to the overall Nitro card capacity. So, it's you know, it's still, it's not quite what you had in Data Center. It's close, but yeah. it's not quite. It's, yeah, it's a way to increase flexibility of, of those routing things for things that need to have a leg in two different places, right? Like, I think it's more for probably like, you know, different application access. If you think about, some, you know, maybe maybe you have a, you know, a software distribution server that 
does both dev and prod. And maybe you have mix for, you know, for each one of those things. And you don't have to do some, some crazy peering solution or something terrible. Um, so, yeah, I get it. Well, if you're a user of the AWS network firewall, it now supports the ability to do egress TLS inspection in two different regions. Uh, it'll probably get expanded wider than that in the future. Uh, this enables you to strengthen your security posture by, of course, breaking encryption, which mm-hmm. improves visibility into encrypted outbound VPC traffic. And starting today, you can use AWS network firewall to decrypt, inspect, and re-encrypt outbound TLS traffic destined for the internet, another VPC, or another subnet. And uh, this is a... a Pretty legacy thing as well from the data center world where, you know, security needed to validate everything going through the thing is allowed and authorized and that there's no data exfiltration happening. And so if you break encryption and inspect everything, you'll know exactly what crossed the wire and open a big security hole in your network. So now you can do that on AWS as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like... Cool, I guess, you know, like in, in, you know, in a world where you probably have everything routing through one of these firewalls, but to go to a special egress VPC and out to the internet, like, I guess. Um, but yeah, do you really need to decrypt it and all the, like, I, I, I just hope that it's completely managed from the, the sort of certificate point of view and doesn't ha- require like dealing with certificate pinning and a whole bunch of other complexity that comes along typically with TLS inspection. I mean, I would assume it has to, right? Have TL, TLS pinning of some kind because you're putting a you're basically man in the middle breaking it. So you have to mm-hmm. you have to put one certificate on one side of the the TLS break and then on the other side that matches. That so yeah. it's got to be it's got to be pinned somewhere. I was hoping for magic. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Amazon might take some of the toil away from you because it's managed in the firewall. But uh, my guess is that you would have to still do something. You'd probably still have to feed it in. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, especially if you're doing, I mean, I guess internet outbound, you probably don't care as much, but if you're doing VPC to VPC inspection, you would definitely care about there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then uh, an interesting announcement, and I'll say why it's interesting here in a second. Uh, AWS European Sovereign Cloud will allow government agencies, regulated industries, and the independent ISVs that support them to store sensitive data and run critical workloads on AWS infrastructure that is operated and supported by AWS employees located in and residents of the EU. Which is not that special, (laughs) because that's what Google's done. That's what Azure has basically announced. Uh, But what's a little unique about this is that it's it's a new region. It's not just a checkbox in a console Mm -hmm. that says I want to be sovereign. It's an it's an entire like GovCloud style region they're building in Germany for this purpose. Uh, And you, they say you can migrate your workloads between other regions to this region, but I assume that means you were going to redeploy your stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the only way I know how to do that stuff in Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, it, it's sort of weird to me. I'm like, you couldn't just set up some rules around it or they really felt like they couldn't provide the proper level of isolation to just EU employees and residents unless they built a whole new region for it. So that's, that's a little weird. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in the works. It's not available today, unlike the other guys who announced it and it was available that day. Uh, so we're, they're assuming we'll be able to get this sometime later probably the next 18 to 24 months my guess yeah my big fear is this is this is the future right so everything goes to the glove club model where you have now you know used to be one product offering and you know with regional sort of segregation in there and for the most part if you were in the bigger regions you know you would your your managed service would be available if not right away pretty soon but now i think we're going to see it sort of 
bifurcate into having lots of little different sovereign clouds, Gov Cloud, mm-hmm. European sovereign cloud, like and it will probably get other regions. Well, and you get into DOD stuff, like Australia DOD has requirements that require you to put that into Australia data center and do things there. Like there's there's all kinds of regulation. Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, for example, you mm-hmm. know, you have to host the data in Saudi Arabia, even though like most of the the only one cloud provider that's there is Google, <laughs> but it's one region. There's no G- DR there, so I guess you can get something sovereign with no DR. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I guess. I guess Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is like, well, if we go down, we go down hard and we don't care <laughs> about yeah. DR. Um, yeah, but there's, yeah, it's the sovereign thing is probably the biggest struggle for most cloud providers. And like, and, you know, B2B has to comply with these things. And then you have B2C companies like Facebook, who have traditionally always had their stuff in in US um, in their own data centers. And then they, you know, basically do large CDN networks to kind of cover global endpoints. You know, these things are impacting those guys as well. And it just makes everything more complicated, everything more expensive and everything more, uh, you know, finicky and how you have to manage route traffic. So it's, I get why they do it because, you know, forcing a cloud to be in their country brings jobs and revenue and helps their economy, but it's painful for a SaaS company or for a B2C company that's got to comply with these laws. And, you know, like with, you know, it's, it's, not only is it the economic impacts, but it's also just data privacy. And and as I think litigation for stuff like training AI models increases, and that data, I think it'll become more important because, you know, laws like this will allow future legislation. So at the country level, like it'll, it'll be illegal to train model on Germany's data at some point, you know, that kind of thing. And oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I can't wait till the EU starts issuing guidance on AI model yeah, it's gonna, training. Yeah. It's going to be real complicated yeah yeah it'll be more complicated which i don't even think is possible really like i at some <laughs> the threshold of which i could understand in complication mm-hmm. we are past yeah like I, i'm already getting confused about how you use large language models to inform mini models that meet your business requirements and then how that doesn't cost you a bajillion dollars like mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's the stuff that i'm still trying to like like yeah. how do you and how do you pull the data from like ha, has that just this whole brand new llm model that has your data in it versus like it's just a mini model that supports the big model and like how that all interweaves like I, yeah, yeah. It, it's i it's, i wish i knew more about ai and ml i i'm going to be doing some more reading and more mm-hmm. research on this because uh, it is the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need no, to be more up to speed on it than I am at the moment. Uh, but, you know, yep. no, I'm learning a ton of current projects right now. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting how easy it's become from when I started forever ago. Yeah. You're just setting up infrastructure for it, not really using it as a, as a, you know, a data scientist, but now to see data scientists in environments, it's night and day comparatively. And it's, you know, getting into like understanding neural nets and some of the stuff that I sort of glaze over and just stare at Jonathan and be like, explain to me in crayon, please. Yeah. And then like, I've, I've been to some interesting, you know, events and there's been certain AI topics that I've listened to. And, you know, I was in this one and they're like, all right, so you're gonna go to bard.google.com. And I'm like, okay. And like now, you know, we're going to simulate a bunch of security stuff in these groups and we're all broken into groups. And I had a tabletop group, um, which is fine. Like tabletops. Uh, and they're like, yeah, so go to go to the Bard website and just type in, in the prompt, run an interactive tabletop exercise on ransomware attack at my company. Include the CEO, CTO, CSO, legal, and HR. And uh, I'm like, okay, put it in. It spits out, you know, 3,000 words of basically, here's your scenario. 
here's the exercise, here's the discussion points, all the key points, the additional notes you want to do and the conclusion. And then I can, I can prompt back to it like, hey, would you add a little additional thing about, uh, you know, ransomware into this or, or sorry, a, additional attack on top of ransomware or exfil, the data got exfilled, what would we add to this process? And it like just keeps adding layers of complexity to it. And I'm like, I've been involved in building these before and hiring consultants and paying them a lot of money mm-hmm. to do what this thing just did in like 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's still really impressive what it can do when it, like this is a good use case for it. Mm-hmm. There's other use cases you should not do. But uh, mm-hmm. this one, this one makes sense. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's just crazy. What, yeah. What it's going to enable. And, you know, it's the more I play around with it, you know, it's the more impressed I am and the more I find different use cases and the more I'm like, oh, you have that moment of like, I could just, you know, give this to the machine to do and it and it works. It's crazy. And so yeah. I've been playing around again with some of the code stuff, which has got, you know, which I haven't done in a few months. Um, and, you know, you can't use it at work because it's, you know, it's everyone's got a policy now. It's like, I don't know how dangerous this is. So no. So, yeah. But it, for personal projects, it's like fair game. And that is uh, yeah. for those who are working on getting AI enabled in their business, who have to work with their legal teams <laughs> to get through the compliance <laughs> of that. It's, yeah. it's a lot we of see fun. You. We yeah. see you. We see you. I feel your pain. <laughs> Uh, I I had never had to experience teaching technology at this level to lawyers. <laughs> it's a it's a fun fun adventure. Yeah. All right. Uh, next up is a GCP announcement. I sort of missed from Google Next, uh, but apparently service extension callouts on Google Cloud application load balancers, uh, which were announced at Google Next, are now available in public preview. Service extensions empower users to quickly and easily customize the data plane on Google Cloud networking products. Uh, this custom logic can address unique workflow requirements, offer an on-ramp for partners to integrate their software with Google services, or help organizations implement cross-cloud network services. Plugins use WebAssembly code to run extensions in line in the network data path, and since they are fully managed resource, they are friendly options for users that want the benefits of Google managed offerings. And then callouts allow users to instruct Google Cloud network products to make RPC callouts to custom services running in Google Cloud, multi-cloud, or on-premise uh, from within the data processing path. And I've read this article twice now, and this mm-hmm. still sounds like black magic to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, with great power comes great responsibility uh, or really good hacks. So be careful with this one, <laughs> I think, is kind of my takeaway at this moment. Because uh, I could see how you could route traffic accidentally inside your load balancer in a way that you do not mean to do. Uh, and that could be dangerous. There are some good quotes here in the article, like uh, John Madison, Chief Marketing Officer and EVP of Product Strategy at Fortinet. With Google Cloud's new service extension call it capability, fortunate in Google Cloud, customers get an even better, more seamless protection for their workloads on Google Cloud. So you're basically kind of slipstreaming security into it in a lot of these ways or, or other different options uh, for your benefits uh, around callouts and service extensions. Yeah. <laughs> I think I read this three times. I still don't really understand, you know, but I keep looking at, you know, like, you know, as I try to understand it, almost anything, I try to figure out how I would use it, you know, usually for evil. But uh, it, this is, I, I realized that this is the reason why I'm having such a hard time with this service is it, it's kind of goes against everything sort of I've been preaching about cloud, like as far as like using managed services to abstract away all the toil. This is just a way to put it right back in there. <laughs> like this is nuts. <laughs> like you can do cool stuff with it. Like with, you know, like, you know, and this is definitely stuff we used to do in the data center for, for crazy, like global DNS and, um, and, you know, region routing or locale routing and, and, 
you know, some of the stuff for, for custom authentication, you can do that, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't do any of these things this, that this empowers, like you should go to something that's much easier to support and maintain and understand. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, we talk often about like, this will be fun to troubleshoot on an incident. This will yeah. be really fun to troubleshoot yeah. on an incident. <laughs> so is it the third party we're sending the traffic to that's making modifications in line on via RPC causing this error or is it our code? Yeah. Like, oh no, <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm actually looking, for, uh, this is one I, I want to take to my Google rep and be like, Hey, can you explain this with me with CRAN and then like, Give me use cases why I would do this and what my mm-hmm. purpose would be. Because I, I do have some more questions with this. Like this one, I get it, but I also don't get it fully. And mm-hmm. and you know, beyond the security inspection use case and validating users and identity, uh, I'm curious if there's other workloads they're intending this for. Or are they really thinking it's a truly just a security thing? Because I could see a ton of other uh, horrible, horrifying things I could do with it <laughs> with the evil hat on uh, in addition to these security things, which are beneficial. Well, I mean, the the one use case I can think of right off the bat is an application that requires very specific, you know, headers, um, especially for evaluating sort of forwarding rules. And is this, a, you know, did this come from this agent or this agent? You can rewrite it. And so if you think about some of the, the terribleness that's in like, you know, that has been done in like F5I rules, this mm-hmm. is another way that you can do that now. And it's just like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, and like, I, I, I don't have a lot of details because the docs are kind of, you know, it's still in preview. But um, so if I am, if I'm an attacker and I can get basically through an RPC call out, I can make a website that looks like anything. Now, through an RPC call to a different service that potentially is your identity provider. Think about the phishing attacks that you could do with this. Like, yeah. Oh, I went to this website and I use my Microsoft 365 credentials to log into it because that's a single sign-on SAML OIDC endpoint. Uh, and actually, I just gave it to a hacker through an RPC endpoint. Now they just have my credentials go do whatever they want to. Yep. Yeah. Oops. Oops. Yeah. No. It's uh, yikes. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's where my brain goes on this. I'm like, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I assume there's protections. I, I can't. It I mean, probably. Yeah. There's got to be more to it than this. I just this article is limited in its ability to explain it to me. Understanding enough, and uh, I need to spend some more quality time with the service extensions over here. <laughs> but uh, there's not a lot of additional detail there either yet. Yeah. Uh, Azure had a bunch of AI stories. I saved you all from them uh, and built them from the story. Uh, <laughs> I started reading through the one, and about halfway through, I was like, I don't, I don't even know what they're saying at this point, and I just can't. So yeah, but I did find an Oracle story for you. What I know, uh, OCI and Google Cloud are getting closer for customers' multi-cloud journey. You can now cross-connect the Google Cloud with OCI. Leveraging Google Cloud's cross-cloud interconnect and Oracle's FastConnect capabilities, you can now pay Oracle to manage your Oracle in their cloud and connect it back to GCP, uh, which is a great way if you're in trouble with them on licensing to hopefully get yourself out of licensing hell and just connect your clouds together and say, yes, you run that for me, Oracle, and we'll pay you all the monies and you'll go away and leave us alone. So yeah, we won't use Java anymore, we promise. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. Uh, I mean, Azure has this now. Google does so. Mm-hmm. Uh, steps in the right direction. And you know, Oracle should have to deal with their own software. So yeah, I agree. Pay them to support it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as much as I I dog on on Oracle, and, and you know that's a good company. They've been around for a long time. I mean, their business practices are terrible. Yeah, but the products are good. 
Um, you know, if you're an Oracle financial customer or, you know, one of these and you want to use Oracle cloud to have them host Oracle financials or any of those products, mm-hmm. then you can cross connect to your cloud for sales entry and web e-commerce. And like, there's, there's a lot of really great use cases for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I do see the value. It's just, yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about just the, you know, being able to access, you know, GCS storage for, uh-huh. for stuff, you know, like, and just, you know, simple things like that will make things a lot easier. Um, so this is cool as long as it can, you know, take advantage of workload identities and, and all that stuff and not be terrible and require a whole bunch of manual key rotations. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's it. That's all I got for you this week. Yeah. It was a quick show. Yeah, it was actually longer than I thought it was. I was going to be like 15 minutes. <laughs> You've been listening to our docile voices for 35 <laughs> minutes. This is TCP talks <laughs> coming to you from the non NPR offices. Yeah. But, uh, anyways. Yeah. Well, we'll see you guys next week and hopefully we get mm-hmm. Matt and Jonathan back next week. Uh, and I, you know, spoiler alert. I think Jonathan wants to talk about next week too. So <laughs> he might find another article for us to talk about it because he's sweet out on it. Yeah. I'm sure he'll have some good insights. So we'll talk to him next week about that. All right. See you next week. You're in the cloud. Right. Bye everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.